Our Old Testament lesson this morning is complicated. To avoid giving you a long list of court officials, we have shortened it slightly. We will begin reading in 1 Kings 3, verse 16, and work our way towards the end of chapter 4. Listen carefully to God's word. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. And when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. King Solomon was king over all Israel, And these were his high officials. You can read that in your devotional time. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Further summary, and then verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Kalkul, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize our weakness. We confess that it's only in your light that we see light. 
Your truth is only known by your spirit. And so we ask this morning, independence and need, that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's his classic novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, where Alexander Dumas introduces us to this idea and concept of moral ambiguity. We experience that moral ambiguity in the hero of the story, the protagonist, Edmond Dantes. If you're familiar, you know the broad sketch of the Count of Monte Cristo, where Dantes is robbed of everything he has, a fiance and a promising career, even his freedom as he's thrown into prison unjustly. An envious friend takes advantage of a situation and of his own power and puts Dantes away. By craft and cunning, Dantes escapes. He finds a tremendous treasure and then builds his life systematically around exacting revenge. You're torn because you feel sympathetic for him. This man who was done so wrong, everything stripped from him. But then you slowly grow cool to him because his sense of injustice turns into bitterness and rage and anger and violence. And we find ourselves not exactly knowing what to do with Edward Dantes, and it's one of the beauties of the novel. Because we like our characters simple, clean, and neat. We like them to be virtuous, or we like them to be filled with vices. We like them to be heroes, or we like them to be villains, and yet in Edward Dantes, we have a very complicated and a complex character. And last week, as we involved ourselves in 1 Kings 3, we saw that this type of moral ambiguity is also in the Bible. And we have it in King Solomon and oftentimes in the church that we're impatient with presentations like this because we have this complicated and divided figure who was the wealthiest and the wisest king of Israel that was to ever take the throne. He was the most successful in ancient Israel. But yet we saw that Solomon's reign, his rise and his fall, was characterized by a mixture of vices and virtues. And to appreciate, though, what God says to the church today, we have to resist the temptation to whitewash the story, making Solomon something he was not, making him more righteous than he actually was. And we also have to resist the temptation to dismiss Solomon, condemning him as just another failure amongst Israel's kings. But rather what we're invited into, we're invited to listen. We're invited to listen to the virtue and to the vice, the fidelity and the unfaithfulness. And in doing so, we're invited to learn about God, about his workings in the world, and we're also invited to learn about ourselves. If you remember in 1 Kings 3, Solomon goes to Gibeon to sacrifice, and in a dream he encounters God. And God gives him the opportunity to request whatever he desired. And in verse 9, we saw that Solomon requested wisdom, literally a hearing heart heart, 
That is a heart that hears from God and knows how to order his life according to God's ways and according to God's word and his works. He wanted to be able to discern between good and evil in order to effectively govern God's people. And so his request for wisdom was a fundamental act of self-renunciation in which he turns from himself and asks God to give him something that would benefit and bless others. It's a remarkable moment to virtue. And we saw that Solomon there is intentionally contrasted with another figure in the Bible on the first pages in Adam. The words good and evil appearing just the same as they do in Genesis 3 because you see, Adam also too wanted wisdom and he plucked the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seeking wisdom. But you see, Adam grasped for it and what he was grasping for was a life independent of God, free from God's authority. But yet Solomon in his virtue doesn't grasp. He asked. He asked God for wisdom. And he was seeking a hearing heart, that is a heart submitted to God, that would find wisdom under God's rule and under his reign. Two very different things. And Solomon there is a hero for us, virtuous, right, and good. And God gave Solomon wisdom generously. He pours it out. This is God's promise to us, even in the book of James, in chapter 1 and verse 5. But Solomon was blessed with wisdom, and everyone knew it. People were in awe of that blessing. And that blessing then flows in chapter 3 through chapter 4 to every part of the Old Testament church's life. And this is what happens when God gives wisdom. It impacts the world. It changes the world around us. And this is what we find, is that Solomon's wisdom blessed Israel. It blessed them spiritually. It blessed them socially. It blessed them politically. It blessed them economically. It blessed them morally. There was no part of life in Israel under Solomon's reign that was not touched and affected positively by Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom impacts and changes the world in which our lives are spent. And so it's really a simple question for us this morning in looking at these two chapters. Is what does wisdom do when it takes up residence among us? And if you bore of three-point sermons, then today you have five. (laughs) What does wisdom do? First, wisdom brings forth justice for all. The first part of the account and the exercise of Solomon's wisdom is well known in verses 16 through 28. Two women, professional sinners in fact, prostitutes, the text makes it plain what they were, come to Solomon for a verdict. Both had been pregnant and given birth to two male sons. Tragedy strikes the house, one dies, and then there's apparent injustice and deceit taking place. And how exactly was the truth to be known? Who could discern which child belonged to whom? Which one had a dead son and which one had a living one? Who was telling the truth? 
when things are concealed from sight? How do we work out justice? And yet Solomon, in his incredible wisdom, works it out. The answer is well known. He brings forth a sword, is going to cut the baby in half, and then in an act of love, the true mother preferred to sacrifice her son to another rather than to have his life extinguished. And Solomon then was revered. He was honored for that wisdom. And there's something critical to see down in verse 28 about what Israel, the church, revered about him. Because it's there that we read these words. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This was the point of wisdom in the church. It was to bring forth justice. And you may consider why exactly are these two women, two prostitutes, professional sinners who were on the margins of society, who were considered to be outcast in many ways, who were simply used by men for their own pleasure. Women in the ancient world did not end up in this situation, in this vocation, because of lust for sexual pleasure. They were driven to it in order simply to survive. And here are these two women, disreputable, being brought to the king, and he does justice for them. And so what is being said? What's happening here in the book of Kings is we're taken to the extreme measures. We're taken to the lowest points of society. We're taken to the parts of society that are typically ignored and not thought important. And when wisdom comes to town, when wisdom shows up, it brings forth justice, not just for the high and mighty, not just for the up and in, but it brings it for the down and the out. This is when wisdom rains down. It establishes justice, and it's justice for all. Equity, equal treatment. And Solomon's justice brings this about, and this would be a just and a good society because of wisdom. Now, the second thing that we find is that wisdom also establishes good order. This is this long section with all the names in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 19. And you find what's happening. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Solomon establishes a cabinet. Saul had not done that. David had done it partially. But he establishes a royal cabinet of wise figures who would assist him in governing the land. And then he sets up districts, something like governors who were to oversee all Israel, breaking up Israel into 12. And Presbyterians love this. Wisdom establishes order. It orders the world in order to bring prosperity and flourishing. In our new members class, I always explained that the favorite Presbyterian verse is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and it's not the verse about speaking in tongues. It's at the end of that in verse 40 where it says, everything is to be done decently and in good order. We have maximized the application of that verse. We have written an entire book called the Book of Church Order that explains how you do everything in our context decently and in good order. And friends, it's a gift. Some people dismiss it as legalistic and outdated and outmoded. 
but it's a gift because it allows God's people when it's used and when it's used wisely, it allows them to flourish and for order to prevail and for us to know how to do justice and righteousness. And this is what's happening under Solomon's reign is wise rule. And in that wise rule, there is blessing. But please also note that this is not just about a clean org chart, okay? The order was for the flourishing of God's people, and that takes us to the third mark of wisdom, that wisdom also brings flourishing. If you follow in chapter 4 and verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. This language echoes the language that we employed in the baptism this morning from Genesis 15, that God's blessing upon Abraham was that he would have descendants as many as the sands on the seashore. And so what's happening here under Solomon in his wisdom? We're seeing at least a partial fulfillment of that promise. We're seeing here a fulfillment of the promise that the descendants of Abraham would be blessed and would multiply and grow great. But it's not just that they were increasing in number. They ate and drank and were happy. That times of scarcity were not known, that they had known because in the ancient world, people lived just on the threat of death. It was always imminent, hanging over their shoulders and over their heads. But they drank and were happy. There was plenty for all. Solomon's economic arrangements had brought about prosperity. They were not oppressive. There was good and there was wise rule. And friends, wisdom brings that type of flourishing. Fourth, in verses 29 through 34, we also see that wisdom inquires broadly. If you follow along, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand upon the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Most important thing to hear in this is that Solomon's wisdom gave him knowledge and inquiring mind about all of God's creation. His understanding wasn't simply about the heart. It was that, to discern good and evil. His understanding wasn't simply about the deep things of God. It was that. There was theology. But there was also an inquisitiveness about God's world, knowing that knowledge of that world never leads you away from God, that knowledge of God's world is a good gift. And so studying biology and chemistry and history and the liberal arts, whatever pursuit it is that you give yourself to, that all of those pursuits don't lead away from God. They lead us to him. And this is what wisdom teaches us here, is that it inquires broadly, and that in broadly pursuing education and aggressively doing so, that seeking to exercise every one of our intellectual gifts of knowledge and of insight, we draw near to God. 
This is what is happening. Now, as a young college freshman, I was involved in college ministry. And as I gave myself to my studies, I remember one conversation with another student where he challenged me and said, you know, you're giving yourself to that study too much. It's not really important. It's not eternal. It's not going to last. And it marked something sad in my own life and a turn that I wish I hadn't taken at that point. Because I did think less of those things. Certainly it can become idolatrous in its own right, but God also frees us into his world to know his truth and to study it, to delight in it, to know the goodness of that knowledge. Abraham Kuyper said it perhaps most effectively that not one square inch of the world does not belong to the risen Jesus. And wisdom inquires about that world. Wisdom delights in it. Wisdom delights in understanding it in all of its spheres. Finally, wisdom brings blessing to all. Turn back into chapter 4 and verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then in verse 34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom overflowed. That there was prosperity and bounty in Israel, but it was not simply confined there. It was not simply for Solomon to enjoy or for the church to delight in. That wisdom was given so that the Abrahamic promise would go further and further. That the nations would be blessed, and this is what's happening. That wisdom was not self-aggrandizement. It was not personal pleasure. It was for the sake of blessing. And the nations were coming. Because wisdom, when it's enacted, is beautiful, and it's good, and it's true. And despite all of our broken condition, human beings know it, and it resonates deep down within us. And we're drawn to that wisdom. And that wisdom blesses the nations when it rains down upon the earth. So we have to ask the question, once again, what went so terribly wrong? Because already, once again, in this passage, we see that all is not well. Despite all the excellent things that have just been said about Solomon's wisdom and the blessing that was flowing to Israel, in the midst of all of that virtue of Solomon and all the goodness that was being poured out, we also hear words of vice. If you look with me in chapter 4 and verse 26. After describing good things about how every man was under his vine and had his own fig tree, an image of prosperity in the ancient world, Solomon also, something's being added here, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. We've said that the book of Kings has to also be read with the book of Deuteronomy open. And it's there that we learn how the kings of Israel were to operate. And in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, we learn very explicitly that the kings of Israel were not to multiply horses. And they were definitely not to go to Egypt to find those horses. 
And we know that Solomon had political ties and alliances to Egypt, and he sought to be like Egypt, and he sought to be a ruler like those known in the world. And so despite all of his wisdom, we also have the frailty and the weakness of Solomon, that he had become a king like all others, and he was multiplying horses. And so what do we make of this? There is one dominant lesson that emerges. As we see Solomon's wisdom, we see that we long for this wisdom to reign upon the earth, for it to fall down from the heavens, because this is the prosperity and the blessing that we long for. But also we're learning something about the broken condition of our world. Nathaniel Hawthorne, in one of my favorite novels, The Scarlet Letter, sums it up this way. The founders of a new colony, whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project, have invariably recognized it among their earliest practical necessities to allot a portion of the virgin soil, soil as a cemetery and another portion as a site of prison. It's prophetic, cutting, that all quest for human utopia that all quest in our broken condition and status for that perfection can never elude the need for a cemetery or a prison. And friends, this is why this entire story of Solomon is directing us to a different place because it's ultimately a shadow. And it's a shadow cast by the coming one, the Lord Jesus, who Paul tells us is the wisdom of God, that he is the true wisdom. And we're being directed to Jesus because obviously Solomon, despite all the wisdom and the goodness and the gifts that were given to him by God, he could not manage it. And neither can you and neither can I. But this is the broken and the falling condition of the human heart. And we're longing for this wisdom to reign and to bring forth this blessing. And we're given a small picture, a foretaste of it in Solomon's reign. We have a taste of it even today as God shares his wisdom with us in Jesus But what we are looking to is the day to come where wisdom and justice will roll down, where the world will be recreated and renewed, that sin will be purged because it is sin that keeps this utopia from being present among us. And friends, this is the role of our Lord Jesus, that he will come and he will bring justice for all that he will bring about good ordering that allows for human beings to flourish. And yet it's a flourishing that doesn't simply take prosperity for itself and self-aggrandizement, but a flourishing that blesses others. There will be knowledge. And from shore to shore, from nation to nation, the hills will clap their hands, the trees will rejoice, that all the world will testify to the glory of its creator, and to the glory of its redeemer. That's what we see in Solomon. This is what we learn in all of his vice and all of his virtue, in all of his complexity and being divided. We're pointed to Jesus to put our hopes in that day where wisdom rains down. And so let's ask God to bring it.
Father, we express our longing and our desire for that great day where your wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, once again comes and he renews everything. That there is justice for all. That there's blessing for the nations. That there is knowledge. There's good order and flourishing and prosperity for all the ends of creation. This is what we long for is the world made right. And we grieve, God. We grieve our part in this tragedy as well as we see it so far from what you have intended. Help us, God. Give us wisdom as you promised even today. And direct us to put our hopes in that great and final day. We ask that you hasten that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.